0: The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus there is always reason to rejoice. It is great to be here this morning. I am uh, excited to be here. Uh, I do see a lot of familiar faces, lots of new ones as well. But uh, as a church, uh, we have prayed for this church Uh, for a long time. You are only four weeks old or so as a church, but we have been praying for you uh, all the way back when Tri-City Church was just a twinkle in Matt's eye. And uh, we did have the great privilege of having him join us on our staff for a year as a church planting apprentice. And what I would say about that whole process is, you know, we began praying for what would happen through this And God has answered those prayers exceedingly abundantly above all that we might have asked or imagined. And it has been fantastic to see three churches come together to help launch one new church. And I know a number of you have come from those churches, but some of you have come from other places and from no church background. And it's great to see how God is bringing together and building this church. Uh, Super excited about that. You are in a series uh, as a church in the book of Philippians, uh, and we're going to continue that series this morning. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning or a Bible app on your mobile device, I want to invite you and encourage you to open it to Philippians chapter 1. If you happen to be using one of the Bibles from the tables out in the lobby, you're going to find this passage on page 840. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 18 today, and I entitled this message a postcard From prison. Now, I gave it that title partly because Paul was in prison while he wrote this letter, but also partly because when you read this letter, it doesn't sound like the type of letter you might expect someone would write in prison. Now, I don't actually have a lot of experience writing letters from prison, I mean, maybe a little. Uh, but I think if I were to write a letter from prison, it would sound a lot different than this one. I think the letter I would write would be filled with, you know, all the details about all the hardships I was experiencing. I would, it would be filled with the complaints that I had about prison life and prison food and the orange jumpsuit and all of the stuff that goes with it. But as you read this letter, you find that Paul is not writing to complain about his situation. This letter does have the feel of a postcard. Prison is great, wish you were here. And what we're going to discover today as we look at these verses is that there are two different ways that we can look at pretty much every situation in our lives. And when I read Paul's perspective on his time in prison, it reminds me of that story of the two shoe salesmen who went to Africa in the early 1900s to see if there was any opportunity for selling shoes there. And they both sent telegrams back to their base in Manchester to report what they found. And the first one wrote back saying, situation hopeless. They don't even wear shoes here. And the second one wrote back and said, glorious opportunity. They don't have any shoes yet. Look, we can look at pretty much every situation in two different ways. And as we explore this paragraph in the book of Philippians, we're going to find that Paul would place himself firmly in the second camp. Rather than seeing his situation in prison as a hopeless situation, he sees his time in prison as a glorious opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. So with that as a backdrop, let's read Philippians uh, 1 Starting at verse 12 and going to verse 18, and this is God's word, this is what it says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Well, the first thing I think we ought to be struck by in this passage is that there is often a huge difference between appearance and reality. Notice how Paul starts in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers or brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, part of Paul's reason for writing this letter was to give an update on his situation so that those living in the city of Philippi would know what was happening to Paul. Now, we're not privy to all of the exchanges that took place between Paul and the Christians in the city of Philippi, but it looks like they would have understood or would have known that he was in prison as he was writing this and that he doesn't need to go into the details to tell them everything. So, the Philippians knew what had happened to Paul. But maybe apart from the fact that he was in prison, we may not remember exactly what had happened to him. So let me give you just a brief overview of what had happened to Paul in the 11 years since he planted this church in the city of Philippi. And Paul actually gives his own summary of his life in this interim period in the book of 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, that's a passage that I like to go back and read anytime I start feeling sorry for myself and thinking, my life is hard. Now, as Paul writes this letter, he's actually under house arrest in Rome, and he will spend at least two years waiting for his trial to come. That's what had happened to Paul. When he says, I want you to know what has happened to me, this is the what has happened to him. Now, if you were an objective observer and you were to, if this was all the data that you had to go on, you would probably conclude that Paul's life was an epic failure, I mean, it sounds like nothing but persecution and hardship and one trial after another. But notice the second half of what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers or brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So if you're in the habit of underlining or circling words in your Bible, you want to circle or highlight that word really. It's translated as actually in the NIV. And the reason this is such an important word is because it demonstrates that there is often a huge difference between appearance and reality. So Paul can say, look, this is what has happened to me. But if you look beneath the surface, then you will see what is really going on when I say there's a difference between the appearance of things and reality in Paul's life, I don't mean that his suffering was just an illusion. I mean, he described all of the things he endured in his life. What I mean is that there's often a difference or always more going on in our lives than what we can see with our eyes. Specifically, what Paul says is that his imprisonment has led to the advance of the gospel. Here's what he says in verse 13. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he says that as a result of his being in prison, the message of the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or the whole palace guard. Now, the imperial guard was sort of the special ops forces of the Roman army. It consisted of 9,000 elite soldiers. I said earlier that Paul was actually under house arrest at this time, and the way it worked is that these soldiers would take turns for their eight-hour shift, one of them being chained to Paul in his cell. So you talk about a captive audience that Paul had, but what better way could you think of to reach Roman soldiers? I mean, they probably weren't going to come to Paul and hear him preach. So God sent Paul to them. And Paul obviously made quite an impression because he says this news has now spread throughout the whole imperial guard. Even those who hadn't guarded Paul personally were hearing about Jesus from the testimony of these other guards. So to the untrained eye, it just looked like Paul was sitting in prison. But in reality, God was using him to spread the message of the gospel, and this is so often how God works. One of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible is the story of Joseph, and you remember the story. His father, he he was sort of the favorite son of his father. His father spoiled him rotten. His older brothers became jealous, and they wanted to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. And he was led down to Egypt where he became a prominent servant and then his master's wife accused him of trying to take advantage of her and so he was then thrown into prison and he stayed in prison a long time until he was suddenly brought out because it was learned that he could interpret dreams and he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and he did so with such success that he was put in charge of all of the grain in Egypt. And shortly after that, his brothers now traveled to Egypt because they were in desperate need of grain and they didn't recognize Joseph. He sold them the grain. Eventually, he revealed his identity and the family was reunited. But then their father died and the brothers started to worry, well, maybe now Joseph is going to pay us back for all the evil treatment that we gave him, the cruelty and the way we sold him into slavery. But this is what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So at many points in Joseph's life, we could have looked at it and looked at the circumstances of his life and concluded it was hopeless and pointless. I mean he was a slave he was a prisoner that was the appearance of things the reality was that God's plan of salvation was advancing through the circumstances of Joseph's life and in fact those things we would look at and say well that's just plain hardship were actually the means that God was using to bring about salvation but this is not something that just applies to biblical characters History is filled with examples of this. You could think of Nelson Mandela sitting in a South African prison for 27 years before the end to apartheid finally came. Or you could think about Martin Luther King Jr. and the way he had to give his life to see the civil rights movement advance. Now, maybe our stories are a lot less dramatic than that, but the same principle applies that there's often a huge difference between the appearance of things and reality. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator from the 17th century, commented on these verses by saying that God is the only successful alchemist. I don't know how many of you remember what alchemy was or is. It was sort of a pre-scientific endeavor, and those who practiced it were primarily concerned with trying to take base metals like lead and somehow chemically transform them into precious metals like silver and gold. But of course, no one was ever successful in accomplishing that because you simply cannot do it. It's impossible. But Scripture reminds us that this is something God does all the time. He is able to take the base circumstances of our lives and somehow transform those into something that is very precious. He takes the seemingly hopeless situations that we face, and he turns them into glorious opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. So we may never find ourselves in prison, but there will be many occasions where it looks like the circumstances of our life have conspired against us. And the question becomes, how do we respond at times like that? Do we have the same view that Paul did? Do we respond to those times by saying situation hopeless or by saying glorious opportunity? Do we see in those times the opportunity for the advancement of the gospel? Now, many of you will be familiar with the name John Piper. He was the longtime pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota. He's written uh, several best-selling books. In 2003, he wrote a book entitled Don't Waste Your Life. That was fittingly about not wasting your life, but in 2006, on the eve of surgery for prostate cancer, he wrote a short article entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer, and at least part of his point in that article was that even in something as devastating as a cancer diagnosis, there can be an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel based on how we respond to it. See, this is the way God works. There's often a massive difference between the appearance of things and what's really going on. second thing we learn from this passage is that there's often a huge difference between our plan for our lives and God's plan for our lives. Now, if you're as old as I am, then you already know this. You've already experienced this, right? I mean, we come up with our plans, and our our plans tend to focus on things like our comfort and our security and our pleasure. We all have a plan for our life. These are the things that I want to accomplish. These are the things that I hope to achieve in life. These are the things I want to experience. Maybe you remember the Pepsi commercial where there were two kids sitting down drinking a Pepsi on a hot summer day, and one of them turned to the other and said, hey, man, what do you want to do? And his friend said, I don't know. Thinking maybe finish high school and then college wife, house, kids, station wagon, riding mower, have the in-laws over for a barbecue, rewire the attic, join the lodge, bowl on Wednesdays, make middle management, hang it up, hang it up and head on down to Miami, buy some white shoes and those pants that come up to my chest, and then complain about the government full time. And of course, his friend says, no, man, I mean, what do you want to do today? Right? Like, we all start out with this kind of plan. Maybe it's not going to Miami with the white shoes and all, but we've got this plan for our lives. And very often, the plan that we come up with for our life is different than the plan that God has for our lives. And even when maybe the end goal gets achieved, very often that end goal gets achieved in a very different way than we thought it would. And a lot of times what that means is that God has to take us through a very difficult process in order to reach that end goal. So Paul is sitting in prison as he's writing this letter, and he's awaiting trial. Now, if you go back to when Paul was first converted, this is what was said about Paul to a man by the name of Ananias, where he was told to go and see Paul. In the book of Acts, God spoke to him and said, Go, for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, just think about that. That's a pretty lofty calling. Here's Paul's calling. He is to go and take the name of Christ and speak it before the Gentiles and even before kings and the children of Israel. So you could hear that. And and if you were on the public speaking circuit and you were told, you know, you're going to be my instrument to take my name to all of these royal officials and even to kings. Well, you might think, you know, you're going to hit the big time. But if you know the story of Paul, and if you've read the book of Acts, then you know that the only reason Paul so often had an audience with high-ranking officials and kings was because he was constantly on trial. See, that was part of God's plan for him. And even Paul's imprisonment isn't the way we would probably draw things up. I mean, when we think about prison ministry. We think about, oh, yeah, you know, you get a group of people together, you go into a prison, you sing some songs, you share the gospel, and then you go home to your nice, comfortable home. That wasn't God's plan for Paul's prison ministry. The plan for Paul's ministry was go to jail. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Spend your declining years chained to a Roman prison guard. Now, not a lot of us sign up for prison ministry in the first place. But under those circumstances, none of us would sign up, right? But God's plan for our lives is so often different than our plan for our lives. Now, as we think about this passage and its implication for us, I want you to think about three questions. Here's the first one. Does your view of God... Allow room for suffering being part of his plan. I mean, here's how Paul speaks about his imprisonment in this passage. In verse 12, he refers to it as, what has happened to me? In verse 13, he goes on to say, my imprisonment is for Christ. And then in verse 16, he says this, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. That's an interesting phrase. And the question is, who put Paul in prison? Well, the Jewish leaders obviously played a role in it. The Roman authorities had a hand in it and carried it out. But the clear implication from the passage is that God put Paul in prison for the advancement and the defense of the gospel. And that kind of suffering was not just for Paul. In a couple of weeks, you're going to come to this passage later in Philippians chapter one. Listen to what Paul says in verse 26. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, this idea that suffering is sometimes part of God's plan for us doesn't sit well with everyone today. And in our day, there's a growing idea of what theologians refer to as open theism. Open theism arose out of an attempt to explain why bad things happen to good people. And the idea of open theism is that either God doesn't know what's going to happen, so he couldn't have prevented it, or he can't do anything about what happens in the world. But that doesn't square with what the Bible teaches. The Bible makes it clear that God not only permits suffering in our lives, but that he sometimes ordains suffering in our lives for a purpose. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here's what God says. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now, we could just leave that at the theoretical level, but how are we supposed to respond at the practical level? If God is sovereign over everything, what do we do with those difficult things that come into our lives? And what I want to say is that we need to come to the place where we can trust God for both the product and the process. Now, usually we like the product a lot better than we like the process. We want the wisdom to make good decisions, but we don't necessarily like making all of those bad decisions first where we learn that kind of wisdom. Or we want to be good at music and sports. We just don't want to go through the agonizing process of all the practice and the discipline that it takes. We want everything right now. At a deeper level, we hear Paul say in the book of Romans that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, wouldn't it be great to have perseverance and character? But what if it takes suffering to get to that place? Or elsewhere, Paul says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But well, we love the sound of eternal glory but we don't necessarily like the troubles that come our way the ones that don't seem light or momentary to us but we need to understand there is a process involved And when I think about what it's like to trust God for the process and not just the product, I think about my kids, especially when they were younger. When my kids were younger, they had this incredible knack, especially in the summer, for getting slivers. It seemed like one of them was always getting a new sliver, and the process of getting it out could be very painful at times. And sometimes you could just kind of pull it out with a pair of tweezers, but a lot of times what you had to do is actually boil a needle and kind of dig that thing out, and it was painful. Now, my kids wanted the end product. I mean, they wanted the sliver out, but it was essential that they would trust me through the process of actually painfully digging that thing out. And we need to come to that same place in our relationship with God. There will be things that happen to us or come into our lives that we may not like. But if it is suffering that produces perseverance, then we have to trust God for both the process and the end product. I think about Job, who in the midst of all of his suffering cried out this way, though he will slay me, yet will I hope in him. And even better than Job, we have one who modeled this perfectly for us in Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before his arrest and crucifixion. He knows what is coming. And so he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, a little bit later, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, that's the model of how we're supposed to submit to God's will in our lives, even when it includes suffering. So first question is, is your view of God big enough to allow for suffering being part of His plan? Second question to think about is this, is your life built around what you can achieve for yourself or the impact you can have on others? We live in this consumer culture where the first question we normally ask is, what will I get out of this or what's in this for me. That's the way we make most of our decisions, right? We follow the desires of our own little trinity. It's me, myself, and I. That's what matters. But what we see in Paul's life is so different than that, what he models here. Notice how Paul looked at his life. I mean, make no mistake, he wanted to get out of prison. He'll go on to say that. But as long as he's in prison, he's not focused on himself He's focused on the impact his life is having on the people around him. And you'll see this actually goes in two directions for Paul just as it should go in two directions for us. So firstly, Paul talks about the impact his imprisonment was having on the pagan prison guards, right? He said this. As a result of his being in chains, the entire imperial guard is hearing the gospel. And many of these guards heard the gospel and placed their faith in Christ. So this was not wasted time for all for Paul. He doesn't sort of sit in prison during these these 2 years and take a hiatus from ministry. He doesn't say, "Well, you know, when I get out of here, then I'm going to share the gospel with someone." And in the same way, we can't say, "Oh, you know, when I'm finished school, or when you know I get married and settle down or when the business is a little bit more established or when we're not so busy or when I'm retired then I'll get serious about being engaged in ministry see it doesn't matter what circumstances you find yourself in today you have the opportunity to impact the lives of those around you So those of you who are Christians need to ask yourself, what impact is your life having on the non-Christians around you? Have you shared the gospel with anyone lately? Have you shown the gospel to anyone lately? By serving them or ministering to them in a time of need, this is not someone else's job. Every one of us is supposed to be an ambassador for Christ in a world that is lost. But I said the impact for Paul's life ran in two directions, so look what he says next in verse 14. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then he says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So as a result of his imprisonment, he says the other Christians have actually become bolder and more confident in sharing their faith. We would think the opposite would have been the case. If Paul was thrown into prison for sharing the gospel, then you'd think everyone else would just want to remain quiet. But that's not what happened, and that's not what happens. If you read church history, you will find that every time some regime tried to stamp out the Christian faith by persecution, it had the opposite effect. And this is what happened in China or what's happening in China. What happens is that as Christians watch other Christians actually living out their faith and sometimes being imprisoned or even dying for their faith, they become emboldened by what they see. Now, I know we're not living in a time of persecution here in the West. None of us is going to be thrown into prison because of our faith. But there's still a point of application for us here. Our lives should impact unbelievers, and they should also encourage our fellow believers. Part of my own story about church planting involves uh, that very thing. Uh, We planted our church about six years ago now, or six years ago this fall, and I remember that one of the decisions that I kind of wrestled through at the time was about my kids. We have four kids. And some of those questions were just the natural questions of like, you know, how how are we going to provide for them in the midst of that? What does that look like? And part of that question was just, what's it going to be like for them? We don't know if there are going to be other kids their age. What does that look like? Is that going to be a really difficult transition for them? And and can we do that? Is that a good thing for us to do? They're in a place they love. They have friends. And I remember speaking with a good friend of mine who had planted a church about six years before uh, we did. And I remember what he said to me. I'll never forget what he said to me because he said, Lee, I came to the place where I realized that I could either te- that I could teach my kids what it means to live by faith, or I could show them what it means to live by faith. And that emboldened me. That gave me kind of the kick in the pants and the courage I needed to step out in faith and plant a church. Look, I need people like that in my life. You need people like that in your life. And maybe more to the point of this, you and I need to become those kinds of people. The kinds of people who live out our faith in such a way that it emboldens the others around us. Third question for you to think about is this. Are you focused on the narrow picture of your circumstances or the big picture of God's glory. I want you to listen again to what Paul says in verses 15 to 18. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This letter or this postcard from prison tells the truth. One of the things I love about it is that Paul is a realist. I mean, this is not like someone's form letter that you get at Christmas time. You know the one I'm talking about? Right? It's got the, the nice picture of the perfect family. It's filled with sort of the details of how, you know, the kids are getting straight A's in school, and the husband just got a promotion at work, and the wife has now decided to start running marathons, and she decided that while they were on vacation in the Bahamas. Right? You know that letter? This is not that type of letter. This is an honest letter, this is not a sort of inst- a fake Instagram post. Paul is sitting in prison, and as he's sitting there, he says, look, I know there are people out there who are preaching the gospel with false motives. I know there are even some out there who are doing this to afflict me in my imprisonment. Right? Probably saying things like, look, believe the gospel and you won't suffer. You see Paul suffering. That's not really the gospel. But Paul isn't sitting there complaining about those who might even preach with false motives. And I've been in ministry long enough to know there are lots of people in ministry for all the wrong reasons. They love the spotlight or the notoriety or the paycheck or whatever. And I'm the kind of guy that could get worked up about that sort of stuff and wonder, you know, what are their motives for doing that? But notice what Paul chooses to focus on. He says he's aware not everyone preaches the gospel for the right reasons, but he rejoices in the fact that the gospel is being preached. See, that's the big picture. And I would just say that the world is filled with people who can only see about six inches in front of them. All of their attention is on the ways that they've been mistreated, the injustices that have been done to them, and the people that have hurt them. And we can live that way if we want to, but it will mean that we completely miss out on what God is doing in the world around us and what he wants to do in us and through us. So here's Paul sitting in prison. He's not wasting his time writing about the unfairness of his situation or the lack of five-star treatment he's been getting. He's focusing on what God is doing while he's stuck in prison and how he can still be part of it. So what are you focused on these days? Is it the narrow picture of what's happening right now? Or is it the big picture of God's glory and how you get to be part of sharing that story? I'm going to end with the way Paul ends his the last letter that he wrote, Book of Second Timothy. These are among the last words they wrote, and here's what he said. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul looked at his life, and the way he pictured it was that his life was just a drink offering that was being poured out before God. And that's how we ought to look at our lives as well that our lives ought to be about the big picture of God's glory and not about the narrow picture of our circumstances that we might be facing. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we have had the opportunity to gather as a church, as your people. And Lord, we pray now that as we reflect on these words that come from Paul and his situation and his perspective, God, we pray that our perspective on our own situation would be changed. We pray that you would give us eyes to see things as they really are and not just as they appear. We pray that you would give us a focus that goes beyond just what's happening in our own little world to see the world around us, those who are hurting, those who are in need of you. And God, we pray you would do this by a work of your spirit in us.